It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. Don't forget that you can also listen online to our recently recorded interviews on our SoundCloud and also on our website. Well, to start the show, we continue our Inspire Awards coverage with a profile of one of the laureates being honoured at tonight's ceremony. It would be difficult to listen to the accomplishments of Gina Wilson in a single episode of this program. However, growing up in Kitiganzibi near Manawaki in Quebec, Wilson aspired at a young age to help those in and out of her community. Element FM, Ottawa's Matthew Bison, sat down with Wilson before tonight's awards to talk more about her upbringing, her career, and her influence on others in our national capital. Let's give it a listen. First of all, let's start at the beginning. You are from Kitiganzibi, First Nation, about 100 kilometers or so away from Ottawa near Manawaki. Uh, what was life like for you there growing up? Oh, Matthew, Kitiganzibi is the most beautiful community filled with lakes and forests, and yes, near the town of Manawaki, where historically both English and French settled uh, near us. And life was, for me, for the most part, wonderful. I grew up with all my cousins, my extended family, all was around, all very close. My my area was Hayes Lake, and I have great memories of, of being there. Um, not many of us can say, however, that it was always ideal, and it and wasn't always easy. Like like a lot of kids growing up on the res, life wasn't uh, easy. And the things you hear about in First Nation communities, um, you know, although the beauty of kinship is also shadowed by by struggle and adversity, and 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 sometimes it was really really hard. But my community, our people, our territory, uh, I love with every part of me, and that that is where my heart is, and it's also where my granddaughter lives, and and she's my heart too. Can you remember when you first considered a career in public service and maybe what sort of inspired you to consider that? Well, federal public service like uh, was not a consideration, but I can, I can come back to that. Uh, First Nation public service, however, was, was my early calling and, and after I went to college and, and university. And, and despite wanting to, to leave the community as a teenager after school, I, I only wanted to go home and serve my people. So I guess in university, um, I wanted to, to give back. So, so I moved back to, uh, to KZ and I, I started working there. Yeah, you became Director of Health and Social Services in KZ uh, at the age of 22. What was it like to have such a high-profile role at such a young age? Well, um, today I always advise people to go for jobs that, that are a stretch for them, and, and that indeed was a big stretch for me. It was a really challenging job. Um, at the time, I had very little coping skills, limited management skills, and, and still probably a lot of um, trauma and, and issues. But at the same time, it tested my leadership skills and, and it stretched all of my abilities. And I really pay honor to people who work on the front lines at the community level. Those jobs are really the toughest. You eventually made your way over to the Assembly of First Nations. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, that too was, was fabulous. Like, like, uh, like in KZ, a fabulous learning opportunity that positioned me to take on another career chapter. 
uh, at the AFM, I got to travel to every part of the country, experience cultures and communities from across the nation, and I got to work with an amazing leader who was national chief at the time, Ovid Mercury. Uh, I watched closely and I learned from him every day. Um, I had the chance to exchange with elders and some incredible leaders, and so that too prepared me for, for the next journey. While I was at AFN, it, it really allowed me to to develop you know, national First Nation policy and programs and operations. Um, I dealt with government counterparts and and watched what to do and what not to do um, in government. It allowed me to get a good sense of, of our First Nation perspectives and our positions and our diversity. And I really worked with some extremely talented, creative professionals who, who did outstanding work. And it led me, you know, really to wonder what I would do next. That was, um, once that was over, and by then I didn't want to move. I had I had two kids, so I thought, you know, what the heck, maybe I'll go see what, what's on the other side and see what I can do from inside government. Did you have any sort of trepidation in terms of making that jump from working with an organization like the AFN in terms of, you know, how different the processes might be on the federal federal government side of things or, you know, things I think some people might suggest things maybe move a little bit slower over there. What were maybe some of your concerns before you decided to make that jump? Oh, absolutely. I, I had all of those trepidations. Um, I, I, I never had considered uh, a career in, in, in the government. That was, that was not on my list of, of things that I wanted to do at the time. I, I had been um, advocating uh, often uh, to government or, or even organizing protests uh, <laughs> that were against the government at the time. So going to the other side was not a consideration, but uh, I have to say it was the best decision of my life. I, I Never had one regret about going over, um, and um, and I've had a great career. All right, for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Gina Wilson, who's set to be honored at tonight's Inspire Awards in our nation's capital. Now, one of the things that stood out for me was your work with Indian Residential Schools Resolution Canada. You were involved in the official apology and the settlement. Uh, what did you take from that experience? Yeah, I, I did a lot of different jobs in, in the public service, but that particular period at, at uh, Indian Residential Schools Resolution Canada stands out for me as well as, as a real uh, career highlight. Uh, making sure that survivors got their settlement, making sure our, our people didn't just get a cold bureaucratic service, with, but one with a heart, with, with compassion. And as, as a senior leader, um, I reported to, uh, to a deputy minister, a judge, and a court-appointed monitor, and, and Phil Fontaine, who is the then national chief at, at the AFN, who pretty much was involved in, in all we did. Uh, he was very invested in, in this work. Um, you know, what, what I took was, was actually um, a, a career highlight, a career experience that, that one can often never get um, to be involved at that level, from being involved in the drafting of the apology, being involved in the organization of events uh, on Parliament Hill. Um, it, it was quite a, quite a time that was shifting in Canada, I would say. And, um, and for me, it was, it was just a, a moment uh, that I'll cherish forever. And specifically that moment when Stephen Harper stood up in the House of Commons to actually deliver the apology. Uh, were you in the House that day? And either way, what was that moment like for you? How will you remember that? Uh, I was definitely in the House that day. Uh, I was uh, responsible uh, for a team who was organizing 
uh, all of the events in the house. Um, uh, we were working with survivors to make sure that they were comfortable, that they had an opportunity to, to be a part of that apology. Um, I would say when the apology was actually delivered, um, uh, you know, the, the whole House of Commons and everyone outside and inside and, and on the tel watching television stopped for that moment. Um, it was a moment where I watched, I watched elders crying, I watched survivors weeping. It, it was a, uh, a moment I'll never forget, and, and I, I still choke up a little bit with emotion when I, when I think about it, um, because it was not only was I tired from working uh, day and night for, for weeks before to make sure everything went, went well, but it was a moment that um, was a turning point, like I said. It was a real, I felt it was a real turning point in Canada. And, um, and to this day, it, it is, it is um, one, of those, uh, one of those highlights that uh, one never forgets. You have worked in many different roles, so we will sort of fast forward a little bit here. But earlier this year, you were appointed Senior Associate Deputy Minister of Diversity, Inclusion and Youth, Canadian Heritage. Uh, what are you most looking forward to achieving in this role? What are some of the items that you're working on in this new position? I was so happy to get this appointment. Um, as you know, sometimes you get to a point in career where you want to work on issues that you're really passionate about and that can make a, a meaningful change in society. So this was definitely one uh, that I, I can see that I can uh, actually contribute in, in a, a great way. Um, as a support to, to Minister Bardish Chagger, my role is to essentially support the government's mandate uh, when it comes to diversity, inclusion and youth. And so, for instance, the true inclusion in this country of Indigenous peoples, the true inclusion in this country of Indigenous peoples and multicultural societies is, is really long overdue. Uh, the justice due for LGBTQ2 peoples in this country is an absolute must. And, and honoring the voices of youth in this country as the, as the real voices of power is what I'm hoping to make uh, progress on in this job. It, it's a pretty exciting mandate. I would imagine that you have likely been noticing, you know, over the last few weeks, you know, especially Indigenous youth and, you know, certainly allies taking, sort of seizing the moment, as you sort of just alluded to, and showing that they are fighting for the future. Is that something that, you know, has inspired you? And, and do you think that's the sort of type of culture you're hoping to foster in this new position as well? Watching some of the youth recently has been uh, a real moment of, of pride. Uh, in many cases, I was... Uh, I was on the street the other day walking up to Parliament Hill for, for some uh, meeting and um, I, I was, these young people, you know, kind of ran by me, uh, young Indigenous people, and they were carrying signs and they were heading to, to the protest. And I just got really overcome with emotion looking at them, you know, and smiling because I was thinking, you know, they're, they're standing up for something and they believe in something and I'm, I'm so proud of them uh, for, for doing so. Um, lot happening, um, and definitely a, a time for reflection. I've spoken to a couple other public servants about you, and they all tell me that you are incredibly supportive and an inspiration for younger Indigenous people sort of navigating their way through the public service. Why is that important for you? Well, um, I, I definitely do try to, to support them um, and then do what I can. Um, I published a report that, that supports them too called Many Voices, One Mind, and it speaks to increasing the number of Indigenous peoples working in the public service um, and, and supporting them and ultimately seeing many of them become deputy ministers. That, that's what I want. Um, it, it's important because 
there are still not enough of us in, in public service and we're not staying long enough and there's still a lot of gaps. And I may be one of the first uh, deputy ministers, but, but damned if I'm going to be the only. So um, I, I think it, 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 if I can mentor, that, that's, uh, that's fabulous. Did you have similar mentors as you were working your way up, as you sort of started your way in the federal public service? Were there people who helped you in this sort of similar light? Um, mentors, you know, I, I had many along the way throughout my career. I, I still do. Um, I also learn a lot from some exceptional colleagues uh, throughout the years and, and today. Um, and, and those mentors or role models didn't really exist back in the day. Um, you know, I, I had no big aspirations. When, when I was young, uh, I thought, you know, heck, if I could get a job and make a living, that's, that's pretty good. Um, certainly, I, I had uh, my grandmothers, for instance, who were exceptionally strong-willed, determined women who were very involved in the community, and I, I watched them a lot. Uh, but, you know, today I'm happy that more of our young people have, have mentors and, and role models. So tonight, you are being honored at the Inspire Awards. Uh, what was your initial reaction when you found out that you were going to be honored this year? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, I think when Roberta called me, I was I was pretty much speechless. I, I couldn't really speak, and, and um, it, it, was, it was just such a surprise and a, and a great honor. Um, and right now, I guess I, I'm a little nervous, to be honest, but, you know, I'm always so blown away that this is coming my way. Um, I'm happy for my community as there are two of us from KZ as recipients, and, and that's pretty cool. And I, I thank all my ancestors for that. And I know my kids and my family are happy because they, they contributed to this in their own ways. And, and I'm happy that, that government public servants are pleased that they, they see one of their own being recognized um, and, and doing something. So, um, you know, I've gotten awards in my career, but to be recognized by your own people doing something um, and, and working for an employer that may not have always been good to, to our people. Um, you know, this is truly the ultimate. Um, it, it's just so meaningful. And I am just so honored, of course, to be recognized. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I'm feeling today. Nice. And what does it mean to you to be, uh, inspire, uh, be honored through this Inspire Award? What it means to me is that, um, you know, and I, I reflect back and I'm talking to you here today, Matthew, about, about my life and my career. Um, it, it, means, it, it really means an acknowledgement for, for things that I have done throughout the years. And, and it, it, that, that just means a lot. All right. Uh, Gina Wilson, thank you so much. Congratulations on this honor. And I certainly wish you continued success on your journey. And thank you for being an inspiration to so many. Oh, miigwech to you and, and to Element FM, Spirit of Radio. Uh, thanks so much. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and of course, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show on the line. It is Tracy LeBlanc. She is the Associate Director of Communications with Covenant House. And uh, we're here to talk about a couple of, uh, couple of things having to do with uh, International Women's Day, specifically trying to raise awareness about um, 
the sex trafficking issue, and also some of the campaigns that are going on around trying to raise awareness of this. So, Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, a little bit about uh, Covenant House, though. Uh, it's the largest agency in Canada that serves youth who are homeless and uh, trafficked or at risk. And it is inclusive and international and, and impactful. As a leader in the sector, they advocate for all youth to have lives free of homelessness and trafficking. And they have donors uh, that meet the emerging needs of youth and accelerate uh, their work. And they are comprehensive uh, youth-driven programming that is centered on unconditional love, absolute respect, and relentless engagement. Uh, Now that, uh, Tracy, right there says a lot about uh, Covenant House and what it does. Uh, specifically, when when you break it down into uh, local things, um, how does it how does it vary, or how does it how is it similar in terms of either looking at it nationally or internationally? That's a very good question, David. So we have two locations in Canada. We have our location in Toronto, and we have another location in Vancouver, and then we have over thirty locations across the Americas, and the head office is in New York. Okay. Now. Uh, you know, we are, uh, as as I mentioned, uh, it's, it's International Women's Day, International Women's Month, trying to raise awareness about um, issues pertaining specifically to to women. Uh, and it uh, it is unfortunate that we still have to actually talk about, I guess, these kind of things, the sex trafficking trade, and and uh, people at risk that are that are actually being uh, used uh, as as pawns by others. Uh, for for services. It's unfortunate and it's alarming, I guess, in this day and age that this kind of stuff, when we are so connected, uh, that we still don't know much about this. Mm-hmm. It's a very good point. And that was the whole impetus behind our campaign, Shoppable Girls. That campaign launched on February 18th in Ontario. And the whole goal behind the campaign is to build awareness to help prevent sex trafficking in Canada because we find it is such a misunderstood crime in Canada. Mm. How do you mean by that? What do you mean by misunderstood? That's a great question, because what we do find is people often have that idea of the movie Taken, for example, and they don't realize that this is actually happening in Canada. In fact, 93% of trafficking victims in Canada are citizens. And victims are being recruited as young as 13. This is happening in communities across Canada right now under our very noses. So I would like everyone to just think about that, what you just said. In Canada, right under our nose, right now, right around the block from where you might be located, uh, something like this might be happening. It's not what we read about or what we think about in terms of being in other countries or halfway around the world. This stuff is going on now, and that I have to tell you, when I saw those uh, those those points that you just raised raised in the statistics, um, I, I was I was quite surprised, you know, that that it is that prevalent, that it, that it is happening right here. The other thing that I was very surprised to hear about was that so much of it is being done by by people that know these people. Yes, I think people have this impression that trafficking happens when someone is kidnapped or physically detained, but it's actually much more of a longer-term kind of progressive process where we find victims are often recruited by someone they know, 
such as males they consider to be their boyfriends or even their friends who might be victims themselves. Yeah, that uh, that one that one really really it just gives me a chill when I think about it uh, about these these guys uh, posing as friends, posing as uh, boyfriends, and, and and doing this, but but deep down, it's they're just trying to to bring people into the the sex trade and use them. It's a highly lucrative industry. It's multi-billion dollars, in fact. It's more lucrative than illegal guns or drug smuggling. And our research says that traffickers are making over $280,000 per year by controlling just one victim. What? Wow. Wow. Um, that is, wow. I don't, even know, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, when you guys hear and know this, this kind of information that comes to you, um, what do you, where do you start with this? I mean, it's a great campaign you did that you wanted to show these girls as, as shoppable items that they are just, uh, they, they're being shown as how they are being represented by these people as things. They're just commodities. They're just, they're not, mm-hmm. they're, um, they're subhuman. They're not human. Mm-hmm. A lot of research went into this campaign. So this whole process started about five years ago where we were providing direct support to survivors of sex trafficking. We have a team dedicated to this. And we found that more work needed to be done in this area of prevention and awareness. So from there, we conducted a number of research studies. So we did a study with Ipsos in 2018 where we spoke with teens and their parents across Canada, teen girls, to find out the attitudes and behaviors that might put them at risk of sex trafficking. And we learned that there's a critical window of time to reach teen girls before their risk factors increase. So we want to try and reach them around age 13. And it's really important that this dialogue is happening at home with their families, because what we learned through our research as well is that survivors of sex trafficking told us that they weren't able to describe, they lacked the words to describe what was happening to them at the time. And they didn't, there was often a lot of stigma and shame at home where they didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Had there been more dialogue and conversation earlier, they might have been able to get help sooner. It's interesting when you say lack of words. It's almost like their lack of experience, their 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 years alone, being thirteen or or, or you know et cetera, uh, so young, uh, being enticed, being approached. Um, obviously, I'm assuming by people much older with with an agenda, a specific agenda that they are approaching these people on. Um, and you know, I did read some of this stuff about how they are being approached. Uh, in terms of, uh, as you said, either by friends making themselves friendly, uh, probably in, uh, entertaining them, maybe taking them out, putting them, you know, taking them out in a nice car, showing them a, a life, and, and and basically breaking down their uh, their 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 walls of of um, suspicion, and and engaging them and bringing them into the circle. Yes, that's right. They prey on vulnerabilities and unmet needs. And there is a strong interconnectivity between a lot of different factors. We know that sex trafficking can happen to any young person, regardless of age, culture, income, orientation, gender, or neighborhood. But we also know that there's a strong interconnection between trauma, race, 
gender, poverty, education, geography when it comes to an increased vulnerability to sexual exploitation. And we know that Indigenous young people are severely overrepresented as being extremely vulnerable to sexual exploitation. Mm. Now, I know that, that what you just said there, regardless of, when you said regardless of, mm-hmm. and you broke down that it's not just it just not just one uh, area of a population. It's not just uh, one uh, type of person or or even nationality. It it breaks down all these these walls. And just like you said, there's this this window. And the, uh, what was it you said that they prey on the... vulnerabilities and unmet needs? Right. So can you give us a, an example? Because I know if there's parents out there that, you know, need to talk to their children about this, what might they be looking for in terms of that needs and vulnerabilities? That's a very good question. I think what we do see is any kind of disruptions in family life, for example, like if a young person is going through a divorce, moving around a lot, struggling with being bullied at school, self-esteem issues, Mm. those can be trigger points, especially if they're engaging online and they're sharing this information in an online forum. That's providing a lot of information to a trafficker who's very savvy, seasoned, and has a bit of a playbook on how to engage in manipulation. They can very easily find key points of reference or things to engage with a young person on, you know, seeing that a a young person might like a specific band or Mm. a specific hobby or something, start engaging with them there and telling them, no one understands you like I understand you. I get you. It's you and me against the world. And from there, creating this trust and this sense of connection as they move into this kind of Romeo pimp phase where it's all about the romance. We call it like a love bomb where they just engage in so much romance and gift giving and and creating such a sense of love that really gets that, that young person um, engaged and, and trusting of, of someone that doesn't have the best of intentions. Yeah, I just want to jump in and, and let people know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And uh, my guest is Tracy LeBlanc, and she is with Covenant House. She's the Associate Director of Communication with Covenant House. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, Tracy. Uh, when, you know, I, I remember seeing this campaign and hearing about it, and about raising awareness and trying to get people to to realize how uh, young people and and of course mostly girls, but it's not just specifically to women, of course, that are being uh, enticed and and uh, groomed in this way to be part of the the sex trade. In as you just raised and told us about that it's happening right here in Canada under our nose, and that we need to be more aware. We need to be more aware of the needs and vulnerabilities of our young people. Uh, especially young girls in, around the age of 13. Uh, and, and I liked what you said there about uh, how they are, if they're sharing this information online, uh, it gives those people that are looking to attract or, or trying to find these, these vulnerable people uh, sharing this information. It gives them clues as to who they might, uh, they might have a chance of, of attracting. Uh, the other side of this, if, if, if I can bring this up, is that it really, you know, it really bothers me, of course, that this is happening in this day and age. We think we'd be further along, I guess, in, in preventing this kind of stuff. But it, the other side is that, yes, we identify, you, you point out the picture about how, what are we doing to prevent this stuff? What are we doing to stop these people? 
do you know of anything that's happening? How is that side of things being looked at? We ourselves at Covenant House have a prevention program where we go out into schools across the greater Toronto area and we reach about 30,000 students each year and we educate them on sex trafficking and also about, since we work with homeless youth, we educate them about the paths to youth homelessness. So for the sex trafficking presentation, we deliver it to students between the grades of 7 to 12 and we provide information about what sex trafficking is, how to spot the warning signs, demystifying those myths, sharing the facts, and then helping them spot. uh, We give examples and case studies of things that might happen in their lives so they can try and decipher when someone has good intentions and when someone might not, and then how they can support each other and support their friends. We always recommend uh, if something doesn't feel right, talk to a trusted adult as soon as possible. Mm, uh, Good points. Um, it sure would, it, it's unfortunate that we do have to talk about this, and, and I, I feel so, uh, I don't know, disheartened that, that there are these perpetrators out there that are doing this uh, deliberately and taking advantage of people in such, such a, you know, a, just a distasteful way of, you know, just going about this stuff. It's just, it, 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 I don't even know what to say, as you can see, I'm just frustrated with this. And it's great that Covenant House is doing the work that you're doing, and I'm glad to hear that you're going out and doing uh, these in-class educational uh, things uh, to help. Um, What can the everyday person do? That's so important to talk about because we all have a role to play. So the goal with our campaign right now is to raise awareness and get people talking. So what we learned from our research study is that dialogue is critical. For young people who even just know the term sex trafficking, if they can just say those words and know what they mean, they can take some steps to protect their safety and to help keep each other safe, including their friends, uh, other loved ones. So it's really important to start understanding the terms like luring and grooming and knowing how to identify those signs. So I think that's a great first step. We have more information online also for parents and caregivers that are listening. We launched a website about two weeks ago. It's called trafficstop.ca, and it is a whole resource center dedicated to information on sex trafficking with a specific section for parents and caregivers. What is sex trafficking? How do I talk about it at home? Uh, Where can I go for more support and help? What are the warning signs? So just educating ourselves and being comfortable with having these difficult, awkward conversations is the first step. Mm. So once again, that traffic, uh, rather that uh, website you just mentioned, uh, trafficstop.ca, people can find out a lot more information at that, uh, at that website. That's right. What else haven't we touched on that you feel is important to mention? I think one of the things that would be interesting and a a nice segue to talk about our research on the barriers to exiting and escaping sex trafficking is our in-house research team, as we were uh, moving into launching Shoppable Girls, was also conducting national research across the country with uh, survivors in eight different cities to understand the barriers that survivors experienced when they were trying to exit or escape sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And we learned from that research that once a victim becomes entrenched in sex trafficking, just how hard it is to get out. 
so that really called to light how important it is for prevention and also how important it is to engage in dialogue because the other thing we found is that these survivors are facing so much stigma and shame when they are able to exit or escape sex trafficking. And it's a real challenge to try and adjust back into mainstream society. So if we can all start talking and having more empathy and compassion for survivors who are engaging in this work and, and, and trying to rebuild their lives, that is critical. I guess in going back to exactly what you said, realizing that they they probably, in, in many cases, could have been coerced, could have been uh, tricked into this uh, through other means, and were not were not even aware that this was happening, and they found themselves uh, eventually in this unfortunate situation. The fact that they, I guess, are able to eventually get out. Uh, is 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 great for them in terms of the strength that they would need. As you say, it's not easy. And they would have, depending, I guess, how long they've been in something like that, uh, as you say, it, it's, it would be much like, a, I don't know, a, a, um, a, you know, being uh, hooked on something. It's hard to just leave it behind and, 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 as you say, feel comfortable getting back into mainstream society and adjusting. Absolutely. And even the simple things that we take for granted, like having credit history, mm. um, being able to negotiate a lease, having a CV, like a, a resume, you know, having work history and references and being accustomed to working nine to five hours, having a work wardrobe, like engaging in a, a typical kind of mainstream workplace, having the education to do so and the means, you know, the housing and the cell phone and all of those pieces that would be necessary to reintegrate into mainstream society, uh, a lot of survivors are struggling with those things. And it's important to have some compassion and empathy and, and understanding all of those difficulties. Mm, understood. Tracy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and, and we appreciate you bringing this information forward and the great work that Covenant House is doing in the campaign about Shoppable Girls that uh, you launched. Uh, and and I, I certainly hope that you're, you continue the, the great work that you're doing to help people, especially uh, your g- girls and women uh, that are affected by the sex trafficking trade. And, and let's hope that that on the other side of this, that, that authorities and, and uh, uh, other things can, can come forward to help, you know, stop these predators and, and, and stop this kind of thing from happening. So we it, hopefully at some point in the future don't have to be talking about this. Agreed. Thank you so much, David, for raising awareness on this really important issue. Our pleasure. I just want to let everyone know once again that if you're interested in finding out more, talk to your kids uh, about this stuff. Uh, don't let it go. As, uh, as uh, Tracy pointed out, um, that these people prey on needs and vulnerabilities and it doesn't matter uh, who you are or what, uh, what background you are or even your uh, monetary status. Uh, these, these people are, are found in all walks of life. So uh, you can go to uh, trafficstop.ca to find out more. It's been a pleasure having Tracy on the show. Thanks once again for her coming in. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And uh, again, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the Radio Player Canada app right across the country. 
Uh, also, if you miss an episode of our interviews or uh, if you caught part of one and you, you want to hear the rest of it, you can go to our SoundCloud. Uh, we post them up there for your listening enjoyment uh, afterwards. Maybe take a day or so to get up there, but also on our SoundCloud and on our website. So I'd like to welcome uh, Gita Sandi. She is the director of The Art of Downsizing, and it is airing on CBC Docs POV. And it is exactly kind of what it sounds like, The Art of Downsizing, but perhaps from a different perspective. Uh, what I mean by that is that this documentary follows three people who are getting to the age where they're where they're they, ha- they have to move on. They have to downsize. And why I say it, it's more than that is because it, 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 it talks, it, it looks at the family and it looks like the involvement of, you know, the family members getting involved and how difficult it is for siblings to get involved with the parents who may have lost one of the, you know, one of their parents have, have passed. So, so the parent is left on their own and they are in either a large home or they have collected items over their long life, and they are now in a position either on their own, because maybe they don't have any children to help, or they have many children. <laughs> and how does, the, how does it get divided up? Uh, what do they do with the belongings? Where is, this, where is this aging parent going to go? Fine and dandy to look at that, but now you have to bring in the... The, the person themselves, what are their wishes and how difficult is it for them to separate from this long life of belongings that mean so much to them. Now I say mean so much to them, you know, I'm, I'm putting quotes up there because in, as we've, it's changing and that's what I'm saying, the world is changing. Children are not looking at these items the same way that the parents were anymore. That's how much this world has changed. So, Gita, welcome to the show. I hope I haven't taken uh, too much out of this introduction uh, of the show. Not at all. That's a wonderful summary of, of where I was sort of coming from uh, in terms of making this film. And I will say that it is on this Sunday, March 8th, 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. On, on CBC, the main network. And, um, yeah, you know, I chose this subject because it is something that is touching all of us. You spoke about the um, uh, intergenerational sort of interaction going on here. And you're right. We've come to a place, I think, where uh, a lot of issues are involved here. We're at an intersection um, where we have, for the first time in history, more older people than younger in the country. Um, We have, on one hand, a real estate boom and on the other, a housing crisis. And we have a fraying healthcare system. Mm. And so uh, when older people are downsizing right now, it's kind of at the epicenter of all of that. So, you know, it seems kind of benign on the surface. Oh, people are Mm -hmm. just kind of purging a couple things. But it's not really like when you're younger. When you're younger, I think it's more like Marie Kondo, which is the art of tidying up. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas now, that's more like decluttering. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you're um, downsizing as an older person, you really are dealing with, as you said, items that are infused with memories for you, but mm. maybe not for your kids and grandkids. And maybe you were kind of thinking more along the lines of legacy. I would like to pass this down as certain things were passed to me. But we're in a much more disposable society yeah. and a different moment in time now. 
and and you could see that on the people in the documentary you could see it on their face there's a there's a pain that their children aren't recognizing that you know you speak beautifully to that and so many people have you know unpredictable people have said oh my goodness i was bawling my eyes out mm. watching that because there is you know as much as there's a lot of joy in moving on and liberating yourself mm-hmm. from having all of that yeah. stuff there is a lot of pain to get there because mm-hmm. you know all of us have our ideas about how the world is and where we're at and it's it's difficult it takes yeah. a lot of courage to go and transition to that next step um go ahead yeah well i was just going to say the other side of that difficulty as well is that uh, at least two of these people have lost someone and they're now on their own faced with having having to deal with this which is you know only makes it that much more difficult for them to try to separate themselves from a lot of these things that have this emotional connection you're so right and you know one of the people says in the film um he says you know i i'm i'm scared that if i get rid of her things yeah. will i not love oh. her anymore yeah like it makes me almost want to cry <laughs> even right now you know and he um is uh, his wife passed mm-hmm. um more recently than yes. the other person's husband passed. yes yes and in fact i was watching the film with him i wanted him to see it before of course it mm. goes on air and um he was reacting and he he saw the other woman he said now when did when did she lose her husband mm-hmm. because he could feel his grief was mm. fresher mm-hmm. you know was was more recent i should right. say right and and you're right there is there's pain involved and yet um one of the reasons that i made this film was to let us all know we're not alone mm-hmm. this is something we all need to do and mm-hmm. to support everyone mm-hmm. else in our lives mm-hmm. to do because if we can age well you know in environments where we're not um uh what is it called burdened mm. by too much clutter and right. too much stuff uh, we will be able to have mobility you'll be able you know it's so it's so practical right yes. you don't want too much stuff on the floor right. you want to be able to reach stuff so you don't yeah. want stuff cupboards full of things that are going to mm-hmm. fall on you you want to be able to reach light switches yep. you don't want to be tripping on carpets yep. like there's some very yeah. practical things Absolutely. involved yep. in what is now called aging in place which mm-hmm. is a big thing mm-hmm. or even getting rid of enough stuff so that you feel comfortable moving to a more age appropriate place the other the other thing that that entails and that's explored with mama in the <laughs> she's How so amazing great. is she? She's great. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> she's so she's, much fun. I just showed her the film last night. I mean she is <laughs> How can you not watch this film when you see her oh, strutting into that birthday party? She's 90 and she yeah. struts into the room like yeah. Beyoncé. Like Yeah, she's great. Come along. She's great. <laughs> and that you just said talked about aging well. I mean there's a perfect example of someone who is and her person, you know, she's so strong. And what a she, woman she is what a woman and she stands up to her kiss and you know talks about all but there's that clutter you were talking about and but there's also that generational thing that is shown up very strongly there because you can see that the things that mean mean something to her you know her her kids once she's gone you know they they're just going to toss the stuff it has no value for them and, and in a way that's sad but it's also that's the way it is folks right so it, it, in some ways it, this is a wake up call for us i love 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 that you say that it is a bit of a wake up call 
And, you know, as a filmmaker, I want to always tell the human story. And yet I always want to refer to a bigger picture. Mm. And so I did consult with academics and gerontologists mm. and all kinds of people. And that is when I did understand that in telling these human stories, the more granular I went, the mm. more I would be referring to a bigger picture. Mm. And I, I, I love that you say that because that means that, yes, I, I wanted this film to kind of liberate all of us mm. and to give us all a wake up call because there's a bit of us in all of those people who had the courage to be in that film and show us their vulnerabilities and in turn our own. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Gita Sandi, and she's the director of The Art of Downsizing, and it is going to air on March the 8th at CBC Doc POV. Uh, you said... Uh, 9 Sunday, p.m. 9 p.m., thank you. And um, I recommend everyone watch this because it certainly has value if you have a parent <laughs> or if you're a child. Um, even your neighbor, uh, even, even the antique neighbor, yeah. dealer down the road. Oh, like yeah. We're all Im implicated, aren't we? Oh, now you just brought up a really interesting point there when you said antique dealer because that's the other side of this is, is that w the other gentleman uh, who is in Bill, Bill and he, he has accumulated with his wife so much stuff. Now that shows you the depth of family connection, generations going back, and the wealth of, of physical uh, items that was collected over time. And he's storing all this stuff. He's had to pay for three storage units over 20 years. And a huge amount of money paid into the storage of these things. And when he goes to the, the uh, antique dealer, who is very, you know, impressed with, of course, all this stuff, but he's he brings another reality moment to, into it, and that is, it ain't what it used to be. And whereas this stuff could have been an investment, may not be the investment that he has invested so much in, in storing this stuff over time. It's a huge amount of stuff. I was surprised that they had, they had that much stuff. But it does go to show the depth of this. I have a question for you, and I'm not sure if you can answer it, but is this... Is this uh, storage or this, the, the things that people have accumulated with the, the aging population, does this go back to wartime? Uh, is this something that has, you know... I love that you asked that question, you know, because I was looking at a lot of the literature talks about the baby boomer generation because the baby boomer mm. generation now is aging. Mm. In fact, I was looking at this, and Mama, of course, is 90. Yeah. Um, Bar they're both so young, you just don't think of it, right? right. But Barb is 79, mm. going on 80 in mm. the film. And um, they are actually from the silent generation. And I felt that, right? That what they, those people went through a depression. They went through war. They don't, like, you know, easily just buy something and dispose of it. Right. We are at such a different place. The mm. divide between those times when even I remember, you know, you would earn your pair of seafarer jeans mm -hmm. that you would buy, you know, mm -hmm. let alone them. Imagine what it took to buy a mahogany table back right. in the day, yep. to buy that set of crockery. Right now, you can go to Ikea and buy one for 20 bucks, which exactly. is like, what? what is right. that? That's like an hour of your time yeah. working at Starbucks practically, right? right? Yeah. 
well, maybe. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, but but I love that you bring that up because yes, it is they you know the divide between the silent generation mm. and like Gen Z or or mm. you know twenty mm. year olds right mm. now. That's a big divide. So, what was your takeaway from this? Yeah, my takeaway from this was that if you consider that you are actually right-sizing instead of downsizing, mm. you're on the right track. If mm. you're thinking about downsizing, you are going to be thinking about your memories that are resident in, in the emblems of your past. If you think about right-sizing, you are going to be thinking about uh, age-appropriate space mm -hmm. that you are constructing for the future. And, you know, that's interesting you say that about age-appropriate. Because as you as you pointed out, Mama uh, at ninety uh, comes strutting into her birthday party, right? Still <laughs> full I, of energy, yeah. dancing I mean, around. Along. Has all her. She could you know, do like the halftime at the Super Bowl. She, <laughs> she could. <laughs> she she you know she she has all her uh, uh, she has her, all her mental capacities. Oh my goodness. She has uh, all her, her. She's mobile. She, you know she is slowing down, but at ninety. I mean, you know, uh, let's think about that. You know, probably a hundred years ago, uh, to, you know, people were not that mobile, probably, and and not living as long as they are now. People are healthier, living longer, uh, and there's other things that are coming into to play. As we know, dementia is one of those things that uh, that I've recently learned about from doing certain interviews. That it is one of those things we didn't used to live this long, and yes, we're we're better, healthier uh, physically, but. Uh, our bodies maybe weren't necessarily made to last as long as they are. Mama's children, a lot of them, the mm. ones that were in the room yeah. discussing yes. what they were going to do with Mama. Like, oh, yes. What, and where, what where we should do she with live Maria? even? You know, right? it's like the sound of music. What mm. shall we do with Maria? <laughs> and um, uh, <laughs> though she's going to tell them clearly what, what, what they're going to do or not do. Um, uh, the thing is that she, at the very end of the film, you can see she's got a walker. Mm. You can see that she has actually been diagnosed at that point. Mm. It happened very mm. quickly mm. with an illness. And um, because they prepared in advance, mm. they were able to catch her when she fell. Right. And I think this is the lesson. And as you say, dementia, like it all happens very quickly when mm. you're older. Mm -hmm. You think that, that it's all free sailing mm -hmm. and it's all good. Um, but... But it's, you know, it's going to catch up with you. And so if you can prepare in advance and, you know, it's amazing how how simple and yet profound that act of kind of looking around you and saying, is what I have who I am mm. or can I let go of it right. to make space for the future? Yeah, because the future is, is going to be compromised at some point. Yes. And, and I think the other thing about that is what what is really important in terms of living, right? Yes, we accumulate these things. Some things are important, but there is that switch that we were talking about. What's really important is, you know, living well, living appropriately, as you've set out, and space appropriate, and, and being ready for those things that are going to happen. Uh, these things are just things, as, as important as they are, as emotionally attached to them that we are. Um, you know, we have that emotional attachment to our relatives, to our children, to our, our cousins, to our, our parents. And, and maybe they're the most important things that we should be. I cannot believe you said that because, yes, there's one line in the film that I think capsulizes it all. And it is Mama when she says, I watched my mother and my grandmother 
my children are watching me. Mm. And um, what that really says is that you're not passing on your things, you're passing on who you are. Mm. All right. Wonderful. Anything we haven't touched on that you want to share with me? I think that says it all, and you had some beautiful insights, and I really (laughs) appreciate that. Well, uh, I have an aging mother uh, so and, and some siblings, and we're struggling with some of these things, so I can readily identify with, with a lot of this stuff. So I appreciate you bringing this. It, it's uh, very timely, as, you, you know, as you, I'm sure you know, and probably one of the reasons, but very entertaining to watch this at Love the same that. time. Mama, come <laughs> on, she's just so great. She's just so great. So uh, I encourage everyone to watch this uh, CBC Doc POV, March 8th, uh, 9 p.m. 9 p.m. And uh, it's called The Art of Downsizing, uh, directed by Gita Sandi, and she is with me here in the studio. It's been a pleasure having her here as well. And uh, look forward to uh, other stuff you'll be bringing. What have you got coming up? Anything else? Thank you so much. Well, um, a holiday is what I have coming up. Mm. But (laughs) but I also (laughs) do have, and it's still, I think, on the CBC Shorts um, website, I have a short film there called 100 and Counting, Secrets mm. to a Long Life. Mm. And it is about the love affair between a 100-year-old and a 110-year-old. And we got 27 million views on Facebook with that. <laughs> so people can always revisit it if they are not one of mm. the 27 million people who saw it. Mm. And on TVO, I have a film about stand-up comics mm. navigating the uh, Toronto comedy scene. And I believe that is still on TVO, and it is called Stand Up Toronto. So just right. Google Stand Up Toronto right. TVO. And uh, the first one you mentioned about the the long life and the longevity of, of the couple, 100 and 107 or whatever 100 it is. 100 and, t- uh, and 110, respectively. Uh, I think I heard something about that. Did you? Did I not? Yeah, you may have, because literally, I mean, it's outrageous. Right. Drake gets yeah. 27 million views. Well, he gets more. <laughs> he gets 100. Well, how many? A billion. But still, do you know what I mean? Like, we were like, what? Yeah, it that's just fabulous. Went, people just were, I mean, they just loved it. It so just goes to wonderful. show you that people still love a good story that has a human connection to it. That's what I always strive to do. So I just love that you said and that. And I think you've done it very well with this art of downsizing. Uh, once again, you can check it out Sunday, CBC Docs, POV, uh, 9 p.m., uh, March 8th been a pleasure having uh, Gita Sandi in the studio director of the art of downsizing and that is our show and we appreciate you listening and tuning in as well until next time we'll see you then I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening.